You are listening to the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches looking to help others spread their passion for the game of basketball. Tune in for episodes about anything basketball related, on the court, off the court, and anything in between. We at the After the Timeout podcast would like to take a full timeout to talk about V-Reps basketball. Coaches, do you get frustrated by how some players just cannot seem to learn your offensive system? Are you spending countless hours teaching your offensive system to your team just for them to forget by the next practice? You should check out V-Reps. V-Reps was founded by basketball players and coaches to create tools that make learning plays easily a reality. V-Reps allows coaches to turn their 2D playbook into a 3D interactive video game that players can watch on any mobile device on their own time. Don't just have players watch film, have them live it and control the players so that they have a better, more efficient learning experience. It's free to try. Go to vreps.us to sign up today. All right, so on today's episode, we're joined by Layson Perkins, founder of the Virtual Coaches Clinic. Uh, I could go on with all the different things Coach Perkins is famous for, but we'll, we'll leave it at that for right now. So, Coach, how you doing? Good morning. Uh, good morning, guys. Doing well. Doing good well. Thank you for uh, asking me to be a part of this. So let's get right into, you know, the, the Summit Coaches Clinics. I was on, I was watching a replay of one last night, actually. Uh, I checked in live with uh, the assistant from Appalachian State, I think the night before. So kind of just take our listeners through, you know, how you kind of started it, you know, how's it kind of changed the game uh, and just the benefits of these coaches clinics through the COVID period. Well, you know, it really started, and I have to give John Carrier, uh, a high school coach in Minnesota, I've really got to give him credit because, you know, he had been doing some of these Google meetups with coaches and kind of exchanging ideas and, and concepts and stuff. And so, uh, you know, he had invited me to, to be a part of it, and I just I never had the time to do it. So, you know, once COVID hit, I remember I, I put a tweet out that said, hey, does anybody want to get together and, and talk, you know? talk basketball and, you know, talk about some ideas. And I had around 40, 50 people respond. Yes, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to do it. And I'm like, well, I just don't have a big enough Zoom room, you know, or the capacity to, to do something, you know, with that. Uh, so, I, you know, I've been doing some work with a company called CoachTube, uh, which does instructional videos for, for coaches of, of all sports. And so I talked to Wade Floyd, who was the owner of CoachTube, and I knew he had a Zoom room. I'm like, hey, Wade, could I borrow your Zoom room? Uh, and do these, I want to get together with these coaches and kind of talk about stuff. And he was like, well, you think we could maybe scale it and do something bigger with it? And I'm like, I don't see why not. I mean, I think a lot of coaches would be interested in doing it. And so he's like, well, he said, let me talk to one other person. So then Wade brought in Lee Klein, who is the former CEO of Five Star. Uh, and Lee had been wanting to do a project with Wade for, you know, for years. And so we all three got together, start talking, and I'm like, well, here are the, here are the coaches I could bring, you know, or I could ask to speak. Lee's like, well, I've got all of my coaches and, you know, that I know that I could speak. And so, you know, it's, I, I, we started on a Sunday afternoon contacting coaches, and within, you know, within an hour, we had 20 coaches, you know, commit to speaking. And, you know, we were literally doing this by, you know, we were kind of building the airplane as we were flying it, so to speak. You know, so once we set the site up, you know, we didn't really have a goal or we didn't have a, an end in mind. So, you know, when the first 5,000 coaches signed up, like, hey, that's pretty good. You know, that's a, yeah, that's not bad. Then, the, you know, the next day it's at 10,000, you know, and it just started growing and growing. So, A, an incredible event that allowed people to connect and, and not only share ideas and share knowledge, but, but really a chance for people to really, you know, interact with each other other make new relationships because obviously you know we couldn't get out we couldn't go to clinics we couldn't go and watch workouts and do the you know watch practices and do the things that we've always done in the past so I think it just 
I think it almost created a new paradigm that things this, that this could be done. And it allowed us also to access coaches, you know, from, from international and from overseas who have great ideas, who have great concepts that, you know, the only way you could, you know, get to know them or talk to them was to go to that country, you know, and, and actually physically visit them in person. You know, the clinics just open up this whole new way of learning and this whole new, like I said, whole new paradigm that I think that, you know, even with the in-person clinics coming back, there would still be a place for it. So that was going to be actually my follow-up. You kind of led right into it is, uh, first of all, Todd and I also really enjoy the John Carrier chats. We've been on uh, those ourselves. But just going forward, you know, with the success of the virtual clinics through COVID, you know, we're all trying to analyze, you know, after COVID, what'll stay and what'll go. Do you think it will decrease attendance at in-person clinics just because of the ease of the, the virtual? No, I don't think it will, because I, I actually spoke at an in-person clinic uh, about two weeks ago. And the first thing I said was, I love the fact that we're actually in person, you know, that I, I think there, I think there's a Zoom burnout. I think there's, I think it's very legitimate to say that people have, you know, are ready to actually get back and hang out with their coaching colleagues and with their friends and, you know, and talk basketball and, and you know, hang out and, and do things like that. So I think there will be a, I think there'll be a variation of it where there will still be a place for the general kind of general clinic, but I think there's also now a move to do more in depth, like the five out clinic that we just did with Chris uh, Oliver, where we focus on a specific subject uh, rather than have a broad area of clinics. Um, I think that's the trend where people are going, because again, we're all, you have that level of coach that it, that enjoys the general clinics, but you also have those coaches like, hey, I really want to get better at, uh, let's say, uh, the Princeton. So who is somebody that I can study or who has you know, some information that I can go more in depth on that particular topic. So the next kind of thing I want to talk about, you talked about connecting, right? And I, you know, I personally, I, I think one of the things I learned is like, you know, you never would think you could talk to or get in touch with some of these coaches, right? Because, you know, I'm a high school coach and, you know, Gino or wherever is at UConn, but, you know, he's right there and accessible. Um, one, I, I want to kind of pick your brain on the, the networking aspect of it, just in, just in general, not necessarily the clinics, but the networking and, um, you know, the kind of the process of, of finding coaching jobs and, and the hiring process, not only for college guys, but for, for, um, you know, high school guys, especially and and how coaches can go about that, um, whether it be connecting with people through zoom or in, in person. Uh, that's a great question because it's something that I've really struggled and focused on for years because I, I, I didn't want to be that person that always contacts someone when I'm looking for a job. You know, I, I wanted to make sure that I gave value and I, you know, I give credit, uh, credit to Kevin Eastman, you know, for this about giving as much value as I can when I contact someone. And, you know, I, I think we all have kind of like our dream list. Yeah, you know, I'd love to be able to talk to Gino Ariema or I'd love to be able to talk to Greg Popovich, you know? And so, you know, there's going directly to, you know, to that person and, and establishing a contact and trying to build a relationship. Then there's always just, you know, going and getting to know their assistants or getting to know, you know, people on their staff with the intention of bringing value, of giving, you know, of helping them in the process. because one of the biggest lessons that I learned from this clinic is that, you know, if you help other people, if you, you know, give them value, they're going to want to give value in return. There's a reciprocal, you know, you know, part of it. And so a lot of speakers that we got for the event was because we knew somebody and we just asked, Hey, would you talk, you know, would you mind, you know, connecting us with this particular coach? Um, I, I, for example, there was a, a, a coach from uh, Europe, uh, Andrea Trinch, Trench Carey, um, an Italian coach who coaches professionally, he's a coach that I've always wanted to talk to. And so because of my relationship with a group in the Czech Republic, I was able to get his phone number. And so, you know, I, I reached out to him and he was like, yeah, as soon as my schedule clears up, I'll speak. And, and, and he did end up speaking in, in May. But, you know, I would say, you know, almost it has to be a daily, I think it has to be a daily um, part of your of your activities where you're sending an email and maybe it's just an article that you saw that you thought that coach might have or like, or, 
you know, I'm a reader. I love to read. So I'll send book notes or quotes, you know, from something that I just read that I just thought might be relevant to any coach. Continue to could do that to build that relationship. So then when it is time for the ask, it doesn't seem as awkward, if, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think it makes sense. Um, you know, and I think in this profession, Todd and I have found through our podcast, you know, we never thought certain people would want to talk to us. And, you know, we reach out to them and like, yeah, we'll come on. Um, but, you know, something we wanted to transition, you know, with you or coaches that have coached a long time, you know, what are for a young coach, uh, we're going to do a couple questions about young coaches coming up, but uh, just for a young coach, what are some lessons you've learned from your experiences and, and some keys to longevity within the profession? We see so many coaches burn out so quickly. So what are some keys or, or lessons learned that you would share with a young coach? I mean, one of the biggest lessons is you, you cannot attach your self-esteem to your win and, win and loss record. That if, at, that at the end of the day, it, it doesn't, that's not what you're going to be remembered for. That you're going to be remembered how you treated people and how, you know, the, the type of emotions that you, you created in others. Um, that's what players are going to remember the most. I think that was my biggest mistake early on was I was so outcome driven versus, you know, focusing more on the process and focusing on relationships. And, and it's still a struggle because, you know, I think anytime you walk into a new situation, into a new program, you're, you know, you have a, a vision, you have an intention that you want to build. And, you know, in that process, you have to balance it along with really getting to know your players. And it's especially harder when you're an off-campus coach. Now, I know some coaches are fortunate enough that they work there at the school. There's a lot of coaches that I know that are, you know, that work from home, work another job, then they come up to the school. And that's a challenge. You know, that that's just really hard. And, you know, that's been my situation or that was my situation my last four years of coaching. And so I think you've got to be really intentional about the, the um, relationship part with spending time with your players and doing things to get to know them. Um, and, and almost thinking away, and this is something from Brendan Serb was, you know, getting permission to coach, you know, a player. You know, it's, I don't think you could just assume this player wants to be coached. You know, it's almost like, hey, can I have, you know, can I coach you? Can I get permission here now to share with you some things? Um, and that way it establishes that I'm coming from a place of, of caring and wanting you to get better versus, hey, I'm just trying to show off my knowledge or I'm just trying to get you to do something that maybe you don't want to do because you just don't see the value in it or you don't see how, you know, this is affecting the team. I'd say that would be the two biggest things. I think the third thing, which is speed, you know, being humble, you know, being willing to learn and not going into a situation thinking you have all the answers. I think if anything, you, uh, you need to have more questions than answers and constantly question, not just, you know, why things were done this a certain way, but how, you know, obviously how you can do things better, or is there another method that might work? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you've got to change your offensive system, or you've got to put a new play in. Maybe it's just, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the way you watch film, maybe it's just, you know, something that you do on game day, but having that willingness to question everything that you do, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis and, and willing to change it, you know, and not worry about what other people are going to think. So I wanted to follow up, you, you know, you talked about relationships. I personally took over a program in the middle of a pandemic, right? So it's, it's very hard to, uh, you know, make those, it's harder to make those connections over Zoom, right? And, and things like that. So I guess over this, this time, you know, what did we learn that we can, what do you think we coaches have learned that we can use relationships wise with some of the technology we've used? And also, uh, maybe, what did we learn that that is more important and kind of trumps everything? Um, you know, being in person as far as relationships. You know, I would say that I think a lot of coaches have learned, and I even learned before. You know, before we had to resort to Zoom, that you know, a lot of players and a lot of you know kids, you know, preferred you know obviously prefer to communicate through text. And so a lot of the conversations that you maybe they don't feel comfortable with one-on-one -on -one or in person with a coach, you know, is better done through text and, and just kind of having, establishing that back and forth with them. And then I think through Zoom, it was almost, 
there's almost a, a better, it's almost a comfort level there. And I even experienced that when I was working with a company that did um, e-learning that was doing like uh, tutoring via, you know, via Zoom or via, you know, um, via um, digital, you know, versus in person. And they were even saying at that point, you know, a lot of these students kind of drop their defenses and drop their guards because there's no physical proximity and, you know, they feel a little bit more comfortable. But I really think kind of going back to an old saying that I remember from sales was that intent counts more than technique. If you're coming in with the intention that, look, I want to, you know, build this relationship. I want to help you. You know, I want to see you grow in all areas, not just as a basketball player, you know, and you have the intention. Are you going to screw up? Yeah. I don't know every, you know, I don't know necessarily every, you know, singer that got, you know, people are listening to right now, or, you know, I don't know maybe the latest lingo, but if I'm showing, if I'm putting the effort in, you know, and showing that I care and, you know, and I'm trying, I think at some point, you know, hopefully they pick up on that. And, you know, and if not, I'll just keep on trying because again, it's not at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's more about planting the seeds that as Kevin Sutton talks about, you know, we're trying to build living trophies. We may not see the results immediately. We may not see the, you know, the, the changes or the effects of what we do for years. Uh, and I'll give you a great example. I remember when I was working at Chapel Hill High School, um, there was a young man in our classroom and he, he came from a troubled home. He had a lot of issues going on. And, um, you know, a lot of people I think had given up on it in, in a sense, just because of what he was doing in that moment. So let's fast forward a couple of years later. I'm taking my son to this, um, you know, these, um, these businesses that, 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 you know, do music lessons like uh, School of Rock. So it's a School of Rock franchise here. I walk in the door. And there's that kid. And I knew he loved music and we connected on music, just talking about different bands and things at the time. But he's now an instructor, you know, working at the school. So I, you know, went to the guy who owned him, like, hey, you know, how's he doing? He's like, you know, he's doing great. He's, you know, he's cleaned up his life. You know, he's talking about how he wants to really make some changes. And so you just never know what the relationship, what you do now, how it's going to affect and help someone else down the road. So I think that's something to always keep in mind. Uh, most definitely, I, you know, I think I think that gets lost a lot in in people. Everybody talks about relationships and culture and all that, but I think that's kind of the base of it. Just connecting with your kids and trying to find a way uh, to make it work. So I want to transition out, transition out to a little bit of uh, X's and O's uh, system. Um, what kind of going back again when you first started coaching? Because obviously, you know, we all know you. You've seen so many things and you've you know, put stuff out there and you've researched and studied. But when you first started coaching, right, being the young coach, right, everybody's naive. What did you run? Um, and then, you know, what kind of things did you keep as you went on? And then what kind of did you get rid of and, you know, the process for that? So when I first started coaching at Cary High School uh, in the mid 90s, we and I was an assistant, we ran. Uh, the numbered fast break, which is something I've kept probably up until the last two or three years when I've moved more to the two-sided break. But I really like numbered break because it allowed me to basically pinpoint, okay, who was supposed to fill which lane. And we had also built our kind of our press attack into it as well. Um, but we ran that into the, um, the Tom Davis modified flex. Um, and so you know, we had, so there was actually two assistant coaches on the staff uh, at the time. There was one coach, um, uh, Alan Gustafson, who ended up, you know, eventually uh, being the head coach at Cary High for a number of years. And I worked for him as a JV coach. He was kind of in charge of that. But our, our, our head coach, Bill Boyette, allowed me to put in some sets. So, you know, we had, I think I, I put in a horn set um, for us at that time. We had a, a couple of, um, um, post-up place, which uh, one that I, I continue to use. And in fact, even my assistant coaches who now coach, you know, use it as well. But um, so I kind of kept that. And then as I, you know, eventually as I became, I guess, had a little bit more freedom, you know, I liked the, you know, I liked the modified flex, but I also wanted something with a little bit more motion and a little bit, you know, a little bit better spacing. That's when I started to move to open post, which, you know, was the first video that I did. I just, I loved watching Huggins, Huggins teams at Cincinnati, you know, back in the nineties and the, the way they just moved the ball and, and the way they could just, you know, you know, create cutting action. And I just thought it was a good fit for us. Of course that changed, you know, once uh, I started watching the Europeans and um, 
you know, the European game and, you know, was picking up more sets from them. But then once I discovered Euro ball screen, it was kind of like, okay, we're going to run Euro ball screen, but then we're going to also have five out kind of as our backup offense. It's kind of like a secondary that we can go to if things just break down. Hey, let's just get in five spots, pass and cut, you know, and go from there. So I, this is a, a debate I've been going back and forth with. Obviously, I, I run a five out offense myself. And, you know, I, I always for years did the, you know, four out one in with the rim runner. And but I realized it, it didn't fit our half court offense. The flow was always kind of janky because my post player would be like, OK, well, I ran to the rim. Well, you know, where do you want me to go? How long do you want me to wait, et cetera? What what was your kind of take us through like your transition period from kind of that that older, you know, rim runner four out to the five out. And last year was the first year I, I kind of did the two sided fast break kind of take us through, you know, how you transitioned and then what you feel the benefits of the, the two-sided are in comparison to the old, you know, more four out with the rim runner. I think the biggest change was just that, you know, again, as you saw the, the big emphasis on spacing, that it really didn't make sense to me to have someone run to the rim every time, unless there was an advantage. You know, I could see if, you know, on a missed break situation, if we get ahead, you know, and, and maybe you've got an advantage in that situation, and, you know, because now every, you know, we talk about creating advantage and, and, and maintain, you know, building that advantage. But then I thought Cody Topper said it best uh, a couple of weeks ago when he did a, this, the five out clinic. He's like, you know, it makes no sense that we're asking, you know, our biggest player, you know, usually our biggest player, sometimes one of our slowest players to run from, you know, from basically free throw line to free throw line you know, or, you know, and then go, you know, get there every single time. It just makes no sense. Why not just stop them at the top and just play from there? And, you know, as soon as he said, I'm like, you know, it just kind of clicked. I'm like, that, that's it. That's the explanation. I kind of, I kind of need it right there because um, I think another thing was just that, you know, sometimes we got stuck with the idea of it had to be our biggest player, you know, it had to be our post player. I remember at both, Cary High School when we when I coached there and um, we did it at Cary Academy is that we had our fastest player you know run to the run to the rim and and again it was just if he could get ahead we we threw it ahead you know just because he was outrunning everybody um, but yeah no I've shifted now just because again I think the five out spacing just allows so much more freedom it allows you to still still post still do the things that you want to do but I just think it takes a lot of pressure off that one player of having to con continually get down the floor, you know, and often how many times would you have a post player, like you said, would run a couple of times, never get the ball. Well, what are they going to do naturally? They're going to stop running. So now it's almost like we're going to take the pressure off of you, just have you run to half court, uh, or run to the top of the key. And now you can be more of a facilitator versus, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm putting all this effort in and doing nothing. I went through the exact same thought process. So I'm glad I'm not the only one. Um, so, you know, Todd and I always like to talk to coaches about, you know, the process of finding this, the right system for you. Um, you know, we recently we've talked to Mike neighbors and, you know, he had some really interesting thoughts about it. Lynn Dunn had some really interesting thoughts about it, but you know, what do you think is, is that process? You know, do you start with the players and adapt your system to them do you fit your players to the system? I think that's the age old question for, for any coach. You know, what are your thoughts about that question? I really think it comes down to the players because especially at the high school level, you're going to have different talent levels. You're going to have different capabilities with your players. And rather than trying to fit them into a system, I think you still have a system, but the system has to have some flexibility to it. And you have to have ways to be able to, to create and get that player, you know, open and get them shots. So, you know, going back to my earlier, you know, earlier discussion about when we were running, um, you know, numbered break and we were running, you know, the, the, the modified flex. Well, I had a really good guard that could get downhill. And so we're like, okay, yeah, we need to set ball screens. You know, we need to get him, you know, within a position where he can come off a ball screen and attack downhill you know, and get to the rim because he's also a very good passer. So defense collapses, he's going to find open players. Same thing when I was at Chapel Hill High School, I'm working for two coaches who played in the Carolina system. And so, of course, they were all about, let's run, you know, we're going to run secondary break, um, things of that nature. And, you know, one day I'm like, hey, guys, I'm like, I, 
I, I agree. I think secondary break is, is, is got some merits to it, but I'm like, we don't necessarily have the post players that coach Smith and coach Williams have. So, you know, we've got some really good guards. So why don't we set some drag screens, you know, or some double drags and let's get them, you know, in the open court and open them up and let them get to the rim. So I think that to me, it starts with the players. And I think it has to be a mix of different things. I, I don't think you could just copy carbon copy one system. Like I can't take Mike neighbors. I could take parts of Mike neighbors offense. I could take parts of, of, of what, you know, maybe coach Don has done. I could take parts from, from this coach and kind of make it my own because I think the, 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 the tendency, the danger is that a coach will watch a play on, on TV and like, Oh, that's a great play. That's a great thing. I'm going to put it in the next day they put it in, you know, they're frustrated at the kids because they're not seeing the same results because Again, we're talking about, you know, especially when we're talking about NBA players, we're talking about a whole different level, you know, of, of talent. And so I really think you have to temper it with, okay, what fits this skill level? What fits these players? Like if I'm coaching, you know, if I'm coaching a youth team, like if I'm coaching like a group of, you know, eighth and, you know, seventh and eighth graders, you know, I'm probably running more five out. You know, I'm teaching them how to space. I'm teaching, um, teaching pass and cut, maybe teaching some, some basic screening actions probably not teaching ball screens. Maybe I'm teaching more gets where, you know, I pass the ball and I, I go get it back from the player, you know, and just, you know, kind of start teaching the principles of ball screens from that, but trying to, you know, trying to carbon copy a playbook from, you know, a college coach or, you know, a, a protein, I just, it doesn't work. I, I just don't think it works, but I think you can pick from it. You can pick parts from it and say, okay, maybe I'll just take this one little, little part right here and add it in. And, and see how it works. So we'd be remiss if we didn't talk to you about the Cottonwood ball screen, right? Um, I've heard you, I've heard your story a couple of times on different podcasts of how you found it, but I, I want to, we want to go in a different direction here a little bit and, and dive into some of the other stuff. So, you know, most people have a pretty good idea um, or, or have seen it, but what are some of the, what are some of the counters within that Cottonwood ball screen, right? Cause you know, you're, you're doing, the same kind of pattern a lot of coaches figured okay we're going to do this to it so so what are what are the some of the counters within that continuity ball screens offense i think one of the biggest and this is something that i i did recently talk about at the clinic is that making it more motion like versus more pattern and robotic and i think the way you do that is that you give the post player when you set when when you set the ball screen and that player either rolls or pops. I mean, I, I don't think you have to roll them every single time. If they're a, you know, if they're if, if they're if they can shoot it, I think you can pop them. But what I think you do now is you give them freedom to either fill back up to the top or stay low. Because I think that opens up a lot. You know, just imagine, you know, you come off the ball screen, you reverse it, that post player rolled and now stays low instead of coming back up. You get the action on the second side. Now they've got a bigger gap to fill into or to, to drive into versus having that post player right there with nail, you know, with a player at the nail, possibly, you know, helping that situation. I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is that you also give that first cutter options. And so maybe, you know, that cutter doesn't necessarily cut to the corner, you know, every time you may have them come and get the ball, which I call a snap action, you know? So now as soon as we reverse it to the post, instead of cutting to the corner, he's just coming right behind and getting the, the ball from that player and either driving it, you know, either side and you play off that. Or you could have them, you know, start to cut instead of filling opposite corner. Now they fill same side corner. So now you've got a ball, you know, you've got a handoff or a ball screen on the side with a roll and replace action. So I think that's one way, to, that's, that's one way to get it um, into more of a motion like. I think this, another thing is that teams have the tendency to only reverse the ball through the high post. And so, you know, most coaches are just gonna deny that high post and, and, and completely take that away to disrupt it. Other than trapping, I think the two, the two best ways to disrupt that offense is to trap it or just, you know, completely take away the high post with a, you know, with a denial and then make them do something else. So you have to have the ability to reverse it either to the wing or to the corner on the three side. And then from there have some actions that you run. Um, there's a school up in Minnesota, uh, coached by the name of Dave Cressel, does a great job with the offense. And, and he and I've talked for years about different ideas. What they do is anytime it hits the queen or the corner on the opposite side and they don't shoot, they basically go into a 
you know, basically a three-man action there where let's say if you hit the wing, the wing doesn't have a shot, maybe doesn't have a one more to the corner. That wing now dribbles to the, to the corner for a dribble handoff, and now the post player follows into a ball screen. And so they just play off that, and then you get the roll and replace action there. If they throw it to the corner, now the wing, if the wing, if the corner doesn't have a shot, and if you don't have a one more to the wing, that wing goes and sets the ball screen, and now the corner player comes down, and you get basically a double screen there. I think that's the that's some of the, the biggest, the best counters or the best options to have within the offense, other than specific actions for your players. Like, you know, one of the tendencies is that the post players, you know, you're not running things, you know, the, the post players are not necessarily getting touches in the offense unless you've got guards that are unselfish and would hit them, you know, on the open, you know, when they're open. So I think you have to run, you know, little uh, specials for them, either the you know, the rip screen, you know, little back screen for them and roll them into the rim. Or maybe, you know, you you reverse it, you know, you get into a cross screen action and get the post the ball. So I think you've got to get them touches as well, you know, in order to make the offense effective. So you mentioned a little bit, but let's talk about defending it, right? What what gives it a lot of trouble? What what kind of, I, I guess, scheme systems, uh, attributes of, of at different athletes, right? Different players gives the ball screen continuity trouble. I would say the first one would be the trap w- would be just trapping the ball screen because at that point, you know, can you get back into the continuity? A lot of teams, I think, you know, if they, if all they work on is the continuity portion, it's almost like disrupting the flex. What do you do? You know, if you've disrupted the flex, what are you going to run to next? And so I think you have to have the ability if you, if you, if you trap, to get the ball out and, and, and score, you know, it can't be a, let's just break the trap and get back in the continuity. No, you got to get the ball to the middle, you know, and, and get in attack the, you know, get the two on one on the backside and get layups off of it. I'd say that would be the first way. I think the second one is, you know, a lot of teams will now ice it, you know, and, and try to not let them use the screen and force it, you know, and force it down, you know, into the, uh, into the baseline area. Again, I think that's, you know, especially if you've got a bigger post that, you know, is more of a shot blocker and, and, you know, has kind of a rim presence that can protect, I think that would be a good strategy there. Um, And then going back to what I said, you know, a second ago with the denial, I think just taking away that reversal pass, especially if you've scouted that team and you see that that, that's all they're doing is looking to reverse to the high post, then yeah, completely take that, completely take that away. Because again, if you've got a shot clock, you know, you're, you're not getting back into continuity at that point. If you have no shot clock, well, then, yeah, I can just reset it and get back into spots and play it again. But if I can do enough to disrupt it and throw you off your pattern, then I think that if you don't practice that and work against it, then that's going to create some confusion, and that's going to completely take away, I think, your tempo and your, um, you know, and your, uh, and your way to, you know, your way to attack. So we kind of just started talking defensively specifically to the continuity ball screen, but, you know, I, I think so much of offense is rhythm and flow. And so for you, you know, what, what do things, what defensive things are very disruptive to offenses? Is it switching defenses? Is it a specific kind of defense? Is it a way to defend? Is it pressure defense? What do you feel is the most disruptive to, to any just different offensive flow? I think it always starts with pressure on the ball. I think if you've got good pressure on the basketball and you're making it very hard for that ball handler to get into, you know, either get the ball down the floor or get the ball entered to start the play, I, I think that's where it starts. And, I, you know, and, you know, we can debate on denying passing lanes, you know, versus playing pack, switching. I, I think to me, everything still starts with, you know, do you have good pressure on the ball? And then from there, it comes down to what are you most comfortable teaching and what are, you know, what are your players most comfortable, you know, playing? Um, Cause I've done both. I mean, we've, we've played pressure, you know, we've played pressure man to man where we're on the line, up the line, taking away passes. You know, I've also played pack. I've, you know, we switched everything, you know, we've guarded the ball screen two or three different ways. Um, I think it all also comes down to your confidence level as a coach saying, Hey, this is what works. This is how we're going to, you know, this is what is going to work to, you know, to cause and disrupt this team. But, but I'm not avoiding the question. I, I'm, I'm kind of going, I'm kind of going around it because, you know, again, there's yeah. different ways to, there's, everybody has a different methodology. 
Yep. I know, and I can tell you from my last experience coaching at the school I was at, because we had so many players that were playing multiple sports, I had to spend more time working on individual development and, and player development and practice. So I just went to switch. I just said, look, we're going to switch everything. And now we're going to focus on making sure that A, we defend the ball, you know, well, and keep the ball in front of us. And then B, we're going to rebound. You know, once, once the shot goes up, we're going to go get that basketball, you know, and then convert to the other end. But, um, but yeah, I, to, to answer your question, I'd almost, I'd almost have to say it would be something of more of a pressure where you're forcing people wider or, you know, you're, you're really forcing them wider to, you know, on a, on a catch, which, you know, almost now, you know, fits into the five out spacing where people are playing that four point, you know, four point spacing, but it's almost to the point of, okay, the only thing I'm allow you really to do is to back cut because, you know, unless you're running like a Princeton system, you've got to hit that. You've got to hit those backdoor cuts consistently in order for somebody to adjust. So before we get into our last two segments, I, we thought this would be a great, you know, question for you specifically, you know, you've obviously worked with, with coaches around the world in Europe and the United States, you know, and, and the skill development is just so different overseas compared to the, to the U S what should, what should we do as U S coaches to develop our, our players similar to how they develop players overseas, because there is a marked difference uh, in the skill development. Well, I think one of the ways, which, you know, as you, as you know, in Europe and internationally, it's based more on the club system. And so the club kind of has the power to, well, for, you know, in addition to, you have to be licensed within the country or licensed by FIBA to coach, but within the club system, the club has a certain like style of play. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we were working with, uh, um, um, with a state in, New, in uh, Australia. And they listed the specific skills that they wanted taught to their players, both offensively and defensively. And so I think that, you know, if you as a coach are coming in and you kind of have this, okay, these are sort of the foundational skills that we want to teach our players, you know, and it's almost a progression, like, okay, from age six to nine, they should have a mastery of this. From nine to you know thirteen, they should have a mastery of this. Once they get to high school, and then if they're going to be at more of an advanced level, you know, of course, like in Australia, the, the more advanced players they go to the Australia Institute for Sport, so they're getting constant you know work, almost like a prep. You know, you know, the better kids going to an Oak Hill or Montverde, you know, here in the U.S. So I think having a specific set of skills for each level that uh, you know that you're able to kind of build on, almost like a foundation. I think that's the starting place. I think the second one is, you know, we, we hear this debate all the time is, you know, not teaching zone at the youth level, you know, at least, you know, not until, you know, at least, you know, JB high school level that you play zone, but they start, players start learning how to play, you know, basic man-to-man principles, you know, not using ball screens, which I love ball screens, but I, it makes no sense at the youth level. They should understand spacing and cutting and, and movement and, and, th- and passing and things like that. So eliminate ball screens until I think maybe 14, 15 years old. I think in Serbia, it's like they can't start running ball screens until they're 16. But, you know, focus on process more than outcome, especially at the youth level, because it, at some point, obviously, it becomes more outcome-based, especially if that player has a desire to, you know, possibly play at the college level. But for right now, hey, let's, you know, at the, especially at the young level, let's really just give them a love for the game Let's help them have fun. And, and, you know, and now they want to come back, you know, and learn more. We create more a desire to learn and, and to get better versus, okay, you know, they're not able to, uh, you know, make, or they're not able to acquire that skill level. Now they're struggling to shoot the ball. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, that's going to be something that continues for down the road because we all know that current performance is not permanent. All right. So we want to, kind of move into our last two segments here we've uh, we've put together a, a 30 second timeout right after the after the timeout podcast here and it's your platform to talk about anything you want um something you know what you have got going at coaches clinic uh, uh an organization you're passionate about a charity uh maybe just a unique story uh, you know uh, a, a topic you want to talk about and it's a very loose 30 seconds 
So, um, you know, kind of your platform to, to go and, and talk about anything you want here. I would say the biggest thing, and, and this may be hard to believe, especially with me, the, you know, the guy who's produced, you know, 20 DVDs, but I think that often we don't focus enough on soft skills as coaches. We, we don't focus on the skills of delegating, of communicating, of, um, you know, being able to kind of deal with conflict within your staff, things of that nature. Uh, it's not, it's needed, it's required, it's just not something that people necessarily want to purchase or do a deep dive of unless it's, you know, unless they found themselves in a situation where they need it and they realize that in order to move ahead. So what I would encourage coaches is to really balance your, your learning, not just with all the X's and O's. It's great. You know, Coach Meyer, Don Meyer always talked about to get all the X's and O's, but you can't use, you can't use all of them, you know, get this knowledge, but also understand you know, how do you manage up? Like, how do you work with your athletic director or with your school president or your school principal? You know, how do you build relationships with your parents? How do you, you know, how do you handle, you know, or how do you not handle? I think handle's not necessarily the right wording, but how do you work with maybe players that have, you know, challenges? Like, for example, there was a player that we once had that had oppositional defiance disorder. And so, you know, working with that player was, you know, was, was a challenge at times because, you know, they saw everything as conflict, especially from our head coach. So, you know, all those things kind of think ahead on and how you would, you know, how you would, um, how you would deal with that. I think the other thing that you, you know, to also remember is that, you know, life is challenging. Life is difficult, not just, you know, for yourself, but for players. I've been in two situations. I've been in two coaching situations where, we've had players pass away, like die either during the season or, you know, or before the season and how it just, it, you know, it has not only effect on you, but also the, you know, their friends and their, their teammates and the whole school itself. And so, you know, being able to, to help your players deal with that, that was something I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for. There's no, there's no coaching clinic that tells you how to handle those situations. So, just having, you know, again, having a network of people that um, that you can go to and having a psychological safety place where you can go as a coach and talk to someone when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling, you know, like, you know, every you're trying everything, but it's not working. And know, again, at the end of the day that your, your self-esteem, your self-worth is not based on your X's and O's or, or your one loss record or the number of championships that you have. It's not worth that. You're going to be remembered for who you are. Your family's going to remember if you, you for the moments that you spend with them and, and not the, the number of, uh, you know, players you've put in college. It's not, you know, or the number of players that you, you know in the NBA. That's nice. That's great. But in the day, it's not what, what you're truly going to be remembered for. I, I just, before we move on to the next segment, I, everything you said was, was phenomenal. I think we could, you know, Todd and I could do multiple episodes on just those topics. I think, the mental health aspect of it is so important. So I, I that was one of my favorite 30 second timeout uh, segments. I know we could talk about X's and O's all day, but that was phenomenal. So thanks coach for that. Um, so the last, the last thing is we, we do a segment called quick hitters. Sometimes these are basketball related. Sometimes they're not, sometimes they're just, you know, having fun uh, quick hitters. So these are just, you know, spontaneous answers. Uh, so the first one for you is your favorite overseas team to watch. Um, it's either Barcelona or Suska, and I've got a Suska shirt on right now. So um, yeah, it's 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 either Barcelona uh, or, or Suska. One uh, one simple thing, maybe maybe a little bit underrated, or something simple that you can in, do to improve your offense. Passing, being able to pass the ball, hit, hitting players on time on target getting the ball, passing with the seams, uh, to me, that, that right there helps with shooting and helps with having a more efficient offense is being able to, to make, the, make the, a good pass. All right, we got the most unique system that you've ever seen or studied. Most unique system. Uh, New Zealand national team ran a flex flare uh, set, and it, was, it wasn't low, it was high. It was, right, it was, a, it was at the free throw line and above. And it was really unique. And I, I had been searching for video for it. I think, I think I found some 
uh, from back in, two, it was around 2006, 2007 when I saw it. And then last year during our clinic, uh, one of our coaches from Argentina, he showed it as well. But it, it's, it was really unique. I really like it. it was, and it was a continuity. So I'm like, you know, this is different. If I'm a flex coach, I might, you know, I might throw this in as a, you know, as a, you know, little counter or just, you know, as a, maybe as an ATO. Uh, your your favorite coach, obviously, you've done these clinics and talked to so many people all the all the time, not only now, but that that kind of maybe is under the radar that no one knows about. I would say that has to be Brent Tipton. Uh, he's the coach of uh, he's a coach in Guam with the Guam national team. He has done a tremendous job on, on the two sided break. Uh, he did one on creating advantages with middle pick and roll. I know he's got one coming up uh, for us on uh, canceling dominoes on defensively. And uh, we kind of joked that the clinic was almost like star search where, you know, you, there were these, co we know there's so many good coaches out there that just don't have the platform or don't get to speak because, you know, you get the bigger name, which, which, you know, I get, I understand, but yeah, Brent came recommended to us from a, another coach. And again, through relationships and just, uh, he's done a fabulous job. I just think he's going to, um, I think he's, he's an up-and-comer that, you know, should keep an eye on and definitely watch his, his clinics because he just does a phenomenal job teaching. All right, Brett Tipton. Now I wrote him down. Um, something that you think all coaches should read. I would say the book Legacy by James Carr. It is the one book that I would have. It's almost like a central reading um, because that book I think encapsulated so many different ideas that I've taken from the business world and from coaching. And it's all in one. And, you know, it's the story of the, of the, the New Zealand all blacks uh, rugby team and their, their culture, but it just, it brought so many things together. Like I think even mentioned, it even mentions um, uh, John Boyd, the uh, air force Colonel who developed this um, system of decision-making called the uh, Oda loop. And I think he even mentions that in the book. So there's so many things that are just, it really kind of confirmed things that are, I was already thinking, but it also gave me new things to think about as well. So I know that that book has been recommended before. We actually had uh, uh, Mr. Carr speak last year at the clinic, but that would be one book I would have for required reading if I was teaching a coaching class. Okay, so in, in your, your travels and your coaching, uh, most underrated place to find good food? Most underrated place to find good food. Oh, man, that, that would be a, that is a tough one. Um, or maybe just a place that stood out, you went there and you're like, oh, man, you know. Oh, um, so I, if you can't tell, I love barbecue. So I, 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 I would say Memphis would be the, the one place for me. It's like barbecue you know, rib heaven for me, uh, because you've got, uh, you know, because you've got rendezvous there, and you've got um, uh, central, central barbecue. Um, I, I don't know if many people know this or not, but I'm trying to put together a, a competition barbecue team for coaches. Uh, I, I think Jim Boone, Coach Boone, yeah. you know, should be kind yeah. of the leader, because he's yeah. always posting stuff, and so <laughs> I, we came up with a team name called Blind Pig. Blind Pig <laughs> Action was going to be the name of our of our uh, barbecue team, but yeah, I would say Memphis. I mean, you know, but then there's also Dreamland in Alabama that I think is is really good, and uh, and then in Texas, um, you know, I, I had a chance to to try Franklin uh, the brisket there in Austin. So, yeah, it, it, I'd say those three. But again, I'm 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 showing my 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 bias for barbecue. And now I'm hungry. All right, last one. So the National Federation of High Schools this week approved the shot clock. So the big question we ask many guests, and this is always controversial, for you, yes or no, high school basketball shot clock? Absolutely. Uh, we've, we've needed it for a long time. And, and I think it's just going to, it's going to help us in so many different ways. Because, um, you know, I, I know the biggest, one of the biggest challenges that when I've talked to college coaches is you know players making that transition from a non-shot clock environment to a shot clock environment? You know that curve can be a little steep. So now hopefully we shorten that curve. You know it's you know I know some coaches are not you know are not going to want it because you know especially when they feel like they're outmatched they're just going to hold it and you know and and you know try to just take the air out completely. But uh, I just think we're going to be we're doing our players a disservice by not you know helping them from day one understand the dynamics and the flow and the rhythm of the game. 
you know, and teaching them one thing. And all of a sudden now, once they get to a next level where it's already, you know, advanced, it's already a lot more difficult because, you know, the, the players are quicker and bigger that we're not giving them, you know, they're not coming in with some confidence versus now I'm having to learn a whole new way. Well, coach, we, we, we really appreciate it. I mean, we, it was awesome, awesome stuff that we got. We did, so especially like John said, the 32nd time out, uh, you know, um, that's kind of the stuff when we went into this, we wanted to get um, from, you know, from our guests different than X's and O's. And he gave us a lot of great insight into not only basketball, but just the other parts of, of life. Right. Um, so we really appreciate it. Um, it was so fun to have you on. And, you know, obviously we will look forward to seeing what you have coming up with the coaches clinics and, and, and everything you're doing with that, which is, which is so amazing. And we've all been so much, so appreciative, especially over this uh, COVID period. So thank you very much, coach. Oh, guys, thank you. No, this has been an honor. I'm so glad to be a part of this. I, I, I love the fact that there's so many coaches out there that are connecting with each other and we're sharing. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, again, it's not what we know, it's what our players know and, 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 and how we, and what, how we can get better to help them. But no, I, I appreciate it. This, this was fun. And, and if I could support y'all in any way with promoting the podcast and, and helping you with, you know, reach more coaches, uh, please let me know. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki. For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our previous episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast by searching After the Timeout. We appreciate you listening. Tune in next time for more basketball content on the court, off the court, and anything in between. Thank you.